Uh, well, if you, you know, it, it's somehow we actually have a lot of other things still going on this morning. Um, we're we're going to do an, an affirmation of, uh, many of you know that we brought in a guy a couple of weeks ago for associate pastor position. So at the end of this service, we're just going to go, if you're a member here, we're just going to ask uh, for a vote of affirmation on bringing him on. Um, then also we are going to, uh, we're going to highlight I was like, what is happening behind me? And, and then we're going to, to uh, briefly mention some of our graduates today. Uh, so normally we try to space things out, but this week we just kind of piled everything on top of each other, uh, which kind of stresses me out. So I don't know how we actually get through everything. Uh, but if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Hebrews 6. Uh, we've been making our way through the book of Hebrews, and I, I'm just excited, especially where we're at today. Um, last week we looked at assurance of our salvation. This week, we're going to look at assurance of our salvation. Next week, we're going to look at assurance of our salvation. Um, there's just a lot here, and so we wanted to be able to space it out and, and give it the attention and the, the details that it needed. Um, the reason we ought to have assurance in our salvation is not ultimately because we want it. Okay, so, so we need to know that. The ultimate basis for why we have assurance of our salvation is because God wants us to have assurance of our salvation. That's what we're going to see today, and I want you to hear that so clearly. This is not something that we have because we want. It's something we have because God gives it, and he wants us to have it. And so I want you to see it just so clearly as we go through this text. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, if you know that he's your Lord and Savior, and that through his death and resurrection that you have been forgiven of your sins, and that you will live with him for all of eternity, he wants you to know you are absolutely secure. Like Jude 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. God, with great joy, keeps his children from stumbling, so they will be with him in his presence for all of eternity. And so what I'm going to do in a moment is I'm going to read this text. We're going to pray, and my prayer is that we would hear this truth, and that we would believe it, and that we would delight in it, and that we would experience Experience the assurance that God wants us to have this morning. And so if you've wrestled with the topic, assurance of salvation, if you've wrestled, can I have assurance? I just, I just want to be clear, this text answers it, so let that topic be settled in your heart and your mind today, that we believe in the assurance of salvation because God gives it, and let us therefore overcome and fight the lies of our fickle feelings at times when we don't feel like we have assurance. Because when those times come, we come back to the truth of God's word. And so what I'm going to do now is read. So I want to invite you to stand. Uh, we stand here at the reading of God's word. Uh, we do that because this is God's word. And he's given it to us so that we would, would know more about him. We would understand the Christian life and how we are to live. So here we are, starting in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, 
Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now today, and we, we ask for your wisdom. We ask for your blessing on this message, that you would give us understanding of your word, that you would give us understanding of the assurance that you desire us to have. And I pray for every believer here that our hearts would be made well, that they would swell with joy because of the assurance that you give us. And if there's anyone here who does not yet know you, may they hear about this assurance and may they be envious of it, may they want it, may they love it, and may you bring them to salvation that they too would trust in Jesus, your son, who has died for us, that we could have life, everlasting life, that our sins would be forgiven, we'd be adopted into your family, and we would have absolute assurance of our salvation. So Father, may your will be done this morning through your word. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um, there's a lot here. Like, I'm really, really excited about this text, and yet the more and more I go through it, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> it's hard to go through it. The text is a little bit clunky in certain ways, um, so to trying to preach through the flow of it, I personally found it difficult, um, so I'm praying that God really just works through this, but, but it's an amazing message that God has given us in his word. So I just want to hold this up and pray that just God works these truths into all of our hearts. So what we're going to do is give three reasons why the story of Abraham is meant to give us a strong encouragement. And if you notice that word strong encouragement from, comes from verse 18 where that is the very desire of God. Um, so what we're first going to see is the life of Abraham proves we inherit the promises by perseverance. Throughout the book so far, the author has called the church to persevere. Remember, this church is suffering. They're, they're wrestling with their faith. They're being persecuted. So they're going, do we stay the path or do we abandon it and go back to Judaism? So he's encouraging them, persevere, persevere. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 14, he says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. If we persevere. And so the whole message has been persevere, persevere, persevere. And now, uh, in verse 12, the verse right before what we read, he said, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That word patience is the word steadfast endurance. It's the word persevere. So he's calling us, hey, we can know that we have salvation if we persevere in the faith. Perseverance is an aspect of of true faith. And so now he's going to give an example. That's how we get to Abraham. He says, let me, let me prove this to you. Let me give you an example of a man who persevered in his faith. And so he's going to talk about 
Abraham, who is by far one of the most important characters that we see throughout God's Word. Um, in Genesis, uh, there are 14 chapters dedicated to the life of Genesis. And if you remember, the story begins in Genesis 12, where God appears to Abraham. He saves him from an idolatrous lifestyle, and he brings him into covenant with him, and he promises him uh, many things. He says, I promise uh, to give you a great to give, to give you land, to make you into a great nation, and to make your name great. So he gives all of these blessings and promises to Abraham. And all of these promises are contingent on the Abrahamic line continuing. But the problem is his wife is barren. And so like in, in chapter 15, Abraham's wrestling with doubt. He's wrestling with his belief in God. And so basically he comes and says, God, how are these going to come true? I have no children. You have not given us children. My wife is barren. So which then God basically reiterates his promises once again to Abraham. And then he makes a covenant with Abraham, testifying to the fact he will fulfill these promises. But then comes Genesis 16. And in Genesis 16, Abraham and his wife, they're continuing to wrestle with these promises. And they're going, how are, we gonna, how are these things going to come true? Maybe, Abraham, what you should do is take Hagar, your slave, have a child with her, and she will carry forth the name. So what we see is that because of his doubt, because of his wrestling with unbelief, he tries to accomplish God's purposes in his own power. To which then God, in Genesis 17, appears now when he is 99 years old, and Sarah, his wife, is 89, and he's like, no, it's not through Ishmael. I'm going to give you a child with your wife, Sarah, and it will be through your child, Isaac, that all the promises will come true. And so what we see here is that as we begin to step forth and, or step back and we look at Abraham's life, we see a couple things. Number one, Abraham's faith is not perfect. He wrestles with his faith. So I just wanted to encourage you, it's okay to wrestle with your faith. When you're in the book of Psalm, you have the writer of Psalm, and different writers are in there, and they're wrestling with their faith. They're often saying, God, where are you? God, wake up. God, I need you at this moment. They're figuring out how does God's promises work out at this moment. And so if you're here and you go, well, I don't know if there's assurance of salvation because I've wrestled with my faith. We see men and women from cover to cover wrestle with their faith. We will not be made perfect until Christ returns. So know that truth. So just because you wrestle with your faith, because you have doubts, because you sometimes struggle with unbelief, does not mean you're an unbeliever. What we then see also as we begin looking at the life of Abraham is God continually reiterated his promises to Abraham. The way we overcome unbelief is by coming to the very promises of God. That's what we see all throughout the life of Abraham. Abraham struggles. God reiterates his promises. Abraham struggles again. God reiterates his promises. The way we overcome doubt, the way we overcome unbelief, sin, trials, laziness, which is what the church is wrestling with here, is by always coming back to the promises of God. 
And so then what we see in Genesis 21, when Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90 years old, way past childbearing age, they have a son named Isaac. Now you might say, why? Why did he wait so long? Why did he wait 25 years to give the answer to this promise? He was teaching Abraham and you and I to have unshakable faith in God's unchanging promises. I want you to see that he's teaching Abraham have unshakable faith in unchanging promises. God is not limited by age. He's not He's not hindered by your physical abilities or inability, saying, well, I can't really work with that. All throughout God's word, we see that his purposes are unable to be conquered. What he desires always comes true. And so when we come back to our text and we look at verses 13 and 14, there we read, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. See, in Genesis 22... After the birth of Isaac, 13, 14 years later, something like that, God now comes to Abraham and says, I need you to go sacrifice your son. And it's incredibly emotionally just tense chapter as you're wrestling through, and it brings up many, many questions, which we're not getting into any today. Um, But it does make us wrestle, wait a minute, how can he offer up Isaac? Isaac is the one through whom the promises are coming through. Isaac is the one whom you said, God, is, is necessary for the fulfillment of these promises. How can he sacrifice Isaac? And when you go and you read Genesis 22, it, it kind of reads like God gives Abraham a promise, or, or God gives Abraham the, the command to go sacrifice him, and Abraham just does it. It doesn't communicate, it doesn't speak about any wrestlings that took place. It just says, God says, go do this, And Abraham begins taking his son to the mountain where he's going to sacrifice him. And we might go, how? Why? What is taking place there? Well, in Hebrews chapter 11, this amazing chapter of faith where we look at so many Old Testament saints, it explains to us what was happening at that moment. So I just want you to hear this. Hebrews 11 verse 17. By faith. Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his own son, meaning he's literally ready to sacrifice his son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Listen, Abraham through faith and perseverance, had learned to trust in the promises of God. So this testing doesn't take place at the very beginning of his life. It takes place later in his life as Abraham has learned to trust in the very promises of God. He had learned learned that God's promises were unchanging and unconquerable. And therefore, he reasoned, if God can give Isaac to us when we're way past childbearing age, then he can certainly raise this child from the dead whom he promised all these promises would come through. So when we look then at verse 15, we read, and thus Abraham, having having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Well, the promise was Isaac at that moment. 
promise was Isaac. The author is telling the church, the church that's struggling, the church that's wrestling with faith, the church that doesn't know if they can continue. And he's saying, imitate the faith of Abraham and persevere. Keep trusting the promises of God. And he's telling the church, look, I get it. Times are hard. Persecution is real. You don't understand the whole picture, and you feel like giving up, and you have doubts. You don't know how everything's going to work out. You ever feel like that? I mean, like, isn't that so much of life? And so what's the solution? Persevere in the promises of God. Keep trusting in God's promises. And so the, church, so the author is reminding this church, he's reminding us, that perseverance in the um, yeah, perseverance in the faith is what marks true, authentic faith in the gospel. We can have assurance in our salvation when we're persevering in our faith, because perseverance is what real faith in Jesus looks like. The, the doctrine um, of assurance is not meant to move us to passivity where we go, well, I'm good to go, right? So I don't need to do anything. We'll actually cover that more next week. But what we see all throughout the book is that as we have this assurance of our salvation, God gives that to us so we'd be spurred on in our faith and we'd run all the more for his glory. Um, amen, indeed. Look, our trials, and Raymond actually hit on this earlier. I was like, man, it's like he read the notes. Um, our trials and suffering often tempt us to think that we're the only ones who have experienced our particular pain. Our sin wants us to feel isolated. Our sin wants us to feel helpless. It wants us to feel hopeless. Our sin wants us to think that God has abandoned us. And that, that's what this church is just wrestling right now. And maybe that's where you're at. Maybe you're just wrestling in the faith. Or you know those who are just wrestling in the faith. And just life has been hard. And we're seeing everything through the lens of pain. When we come to Scripture, the reality is there is nothing new under the sun. The path that you and I are on is well-worn. Do you know that? It is well-worn. And when we come into God's Word, we see other Old Testament saints and New Testament saints who have walked the path that we're on. The reason we talk about biographies is because these are men and women who have walked the path that you and I are on. So we are regularly reminded that this path, this pain, we're not the only ones who have ever experienced this. In fact, we have seen many, many, many saints who have gone before us, endured the pain, trusted in God's promises, and have experienced great joy as they do so. The author is wanting us to know that we can keep trusting in the promises of God. Promises like Hebrews 13, 5, which I can't wait till we get there, where he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you know that truth? That's God's promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. In fact, when you look through God's word and when he's telling them, I need you to do these hard things, you know what the basis every single time on why we can do the things that God calls us to do? is because of God's presence with us. In fact, if you're a student here, the last message we gave was from Jeremiah chapter 1, when Jeremiah was commissioned to go be a prophet and to go speak the, the message that God gave to uh, his people. And basically, we learned that nobody wants to hear the message of Jeremiah and that everyone's going to be against him. And so, you know, that's how you recruit people. 
And, and so then basically God says, but I'll be with you. That's why you can do it, Jeremiah. And that's why we can persevere in the promises is because ultimately it's God's grace working in you and in me. He's not saying pull yourself up by your bootstraps. He's not saying suck it up. He's not saying just run harder, try harder. He's turning us, directing us to the very promises of God that we go, oh, God has promised this and he's going to give us the grace we need to keep running this race. Um, that's number one, why we have the story of Abraham. That as we persevere, we would have assurance. Number two, the promise made to Abraham applies to the church. And you got to see this. I mean, ultimately, the promise that God gave in Genesis 22 is applied to the church. When we read in the New Testament, what, when we read about the children of Abraham, the New Testament tells us that the children of Abraham are those who believe in Jesus Christ. Let me just give a few references. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16, we're just told this. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So who are the offspring of Abraham? The book of Galatians talks about it a whole lot with great clarity. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Galatians 3, verse 13 and 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Galatians 3, 28 to 30. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to the promise. So who are the children of Abraham? It's the church. Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free, everyone, doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, if you believe in Christ, you are a child of God. In fact, in Romans chapter 2, this is how Paul talks about it there. He says, no one is merely a Jew, no, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Interesting. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The true people of God are not those who can trace bloodlines from Abraham, but those who are part of the family of God through Jesus Christ. That's the family of God. And what we see is, as we work through the Old Testament, that God begins creating a people for himself. Ultimately, it's all through Jesus Christ, his son, that all who believe in him are the very people of God. And so we say that. So when we look back at the promise in verse 17 that's in our text, God says he desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise. The promise that he gives to Abraham, he desires to show more convincingly. That's us, the church, the unchangeable character of his purposes. Now skip down to verse 18. So that we who have fled for refuge, that means that we who have, who have fled to God for our hope, we don't put hope in anything else, but we, we come to God and say, God, you are our refuge. You are who we trust in. So that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The purpose of the promise 
is ultimately given to the church as a strong encouragement so we would hold fast to our hope. That's why he gives this promise. God gave the promise to Abraham thousands of years earlier so that we would see today that in Jesus Christ, this promise is being fulfilled. Like think about it. The church 2,000 years ago, they're, they're sitting there with other believers. Is God going to multiply the children of Abraham? And we say, well, in Jesus, we see that he is saving a people. Yes, the answer is yes. He is multiplying the children of Abraham. The blessing given to Abraham through Jesus is being lived and experienced right now. So as the church in Hebrews is looking at one another, they can be encouraged. God has kept his promises. And today, as we gather, we are a testimony of the faithfulness of God, of him keeping his promises. Do you know that? Like, isn't that good news? God saves a people for his glory. He's promised to do that all the way back in Genesis, and we see his faithfulness throughout the ages. Sometimes it's been a small remnant that's been preserved. And as we've come now into the New Testament, we see that the gospel continues to go forth, and more and more people of all tribes and all nations and all languages are being saved so that one day we get to, Hebrew, to Revelation 7, which is an amazing picture. We have all these people of all these different nations and tribes gathered around the one throne of Jesus Christ praising him. And he does this so we would have a strong encouragement. He gave promises so we would have strong encouragement. Don't miss it. Verse 17. He desired to show more convincingly the heirs to the heirs of his promise so that, as we go to verse 18, we would have strong encouragement. He gave promises so you and I would have assurance of salvation. If you remember last week, um, I quoted Cardinal Bellarmine, Bellarmine, whoever that is, Catholic Cardinal. And he equated, do you remember? He equated assurance with heresy. That's what he did. He said it is heretical for Protestants to think that you can have assurance of salvation. And yet, our very text says God desires to show more convincingly to the church, the heirs of the promise, that we would have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope. I challenge you, which one's heretical? God's word says he desires we have strong encouragement. He wants us to know the truth of John 10, 28, where Jesus says, I give them eternal life that they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Do you know that? He wants us to know that truth because that was the whole purpose why Jesus came. When we look in the Gospels, we see that the ultimate way that God fulfills his promise to Abraham is through the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, that he would come to this earth as a man he would live a life like you and I, but he would then be crucified for our sins because we were born sinful and we're under the wrath of God. And because of that, we deserve punishment. But God has grace, and he sends forth Jesus to die, that we'd be saved by that grace, that we'd be made into his people, into the very children of Abraham, and that we would live with him forever. So no the promises that God has given us throughout his word and ones we have made to Abraham are given so we would have strong encouragement to hold fast to our faith. 
But there's an interesting question I think we can ask in this text. But why does God make an oath? Like, like in verse 18, we're told God doesn't lie. Um, we see that throughout Scripture. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? The author's point is, God is perfect. He never lies. He never changes his mind. So why would, he, why would he make an oath? I mean, in verse 16, we see that people will swear by something greater than themselves as a means of testifying to the truthfulness of what they are saying. In verse, at the end of verse 16, it says, an oath is a final confirmation. So we take oaths so that we know that we're actually being honest. Isn't that crazy? Which is why, if you go to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says we shouldn't take oaths because as the people of God, every single word we say ought to be true, right? So he encourages every word that we speak ought to be, in a sense, as trustworthy as any oath. But, but coming back here, we understand oaths are taken. Like when you go to a court, the witness will, before giving testimony, place his hand on the Bible to say, on the much higher authority of God's word of what I am saying is true using that as a testimony to say that his words are true. Nobody swears to the trustworthiness of their word on an iPhone or a step stool or anything like that because what happens to those things? They break, they get replaced, they get tossed somewhere, nobody cares about them. They have no real value and authority to them. By taking an oath before God, when we do that, we're saying that everything that we're saying is true. But again, why is it that God takes an oath? He doesn't lie. So we do got to wrestle with that. And the text does tell us. Look at verse 17. When God decided to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the church, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. He says, by myself I have sworn. And then he says, by myself I have sworn. And we read in verse uh, 14, surely I will bless you and multiply you. That's what we read. If you go back to Genesis 22, 16, 17, he says, by myself I have sworn. I take an oath. I will bless you and multiply you. So there's an oath and a promise. And what we learn in verse 17 of our text is that the oath and promise given to Abraham testify of God's unchanging character. God's not swearing to his truthfulness so that we actually know this time he's being true. He's not saying, okay, I'm actually swearing by myself this time. You can believe me. I'm not kidding. I'm not being sarcastic. I'm not lying to you like last time. He doesn't do it for that purpose. He does it so we would know the unchanging purpose of his character. God doesn't lie. It's 100% true. All throughout, like 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, we read, Know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. Again, we're told Jesus is true. God is true. 1 John 5, 6, the Spirit is truth. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the, the truth. Is it life? No, truth and then life. <laughs> I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There's no impurity in God. And get this. We, we need this. 
It's not that he chooses not to lie. He cannot lie. You know, God can do anything. No. He cannot lie. That would go against his name, would go against his glory. Everything God does is for his glory. Everything God does is to show his glory and his magnitude. And that we, and that he alone is worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. He is absolutely perfect. There is no room for him to increase. Do you know that? Like you and I, we can get better at things or we can get worse at things. As we get older, sometimes we get better at things. And as we get older, we, we get slower and, and, and things don't work always as well. God has no room to improve and he cannot unimprove. Unimprove? Is that a word? You guys get the point. That's what pastors do. We just make up words on the... On the... Yeah, check Webster on me. But here's the thing. He cannot lie. Which means every time we come into his word, every promise is unchanging. Every promise he will keep. Every promise is unable to be conquered. You get that? Like he promises everything with his full character, with his full power, with his full glory. Nothing can stand in the way of his promises being fulfilled. So the reason he says, okay, I swear by my name right now, and he gives this promise, so it's by oath and by promise, he's doing so not so we go, okay, good, we can finally trust in God. He does it so his character would be on display, and we would say he never changes. We can bank on his word. We can trust wholeheartedly. So he's turning to this church. This church is struggling with their faith. This church is wrestling. Can we keep going? And he's saying, oh, you can have unshakable faith in the unchanging promises of God because they will not change. They will not be conquered. Do not turn back to Judaism. Do not turn back to something else. Keep persevering in the faith. That's the assurance that we have, which is why when we read um, Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When we appear before God in those gates, and he says, why will I let you in? And you say, well, on the basis of Jesus Christ. And he says, oh, apparently you didn't read the footnotes. You didn't get the change that took place. Yeah, it's no longer on Jesus. I changed that. We don't have to worry about that at all because God's promises are unchanging. They're 100% true. And when he says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, if we call on the name of Jesus and we truly believe in him and we bear fruit for his kingdom, meaning there's real faith, it's lived out, we can have 100% assurance that we will be with God for all of eternity. Isn't that good news? So when we go back, Hebrews 10, verse 17, when we read, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And we appear before the gates, and God's going to go, you know, there was that one sin. That one didn't get paid for. Do you ever get plagued with that in your thoughts? Oh, what about this one? What about that one? Will God forgive this? Will God forgive that? Oh, I, maybe I've done too much. We come back to the truth. 
I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So when will he bring up your sin and lawlessness again? He promises he will never do it. So when is that going to change? Never. Do you see the assurance we're meant to have? The strong encouragement we're meant to have? Now we have fickle hearts and fickle minds, right? We wrestle with things and we have experiences. And sometimes we read God's word through experiences versus through the truthfulness of his word. And when we do that, we go, well, what, what about my sin? What about this or what about that? And we try to make these little ways that maybe God's word won't come true. And it's at that point what we must do and why we need one another is to remind one another of the greater authority of God's word. And we always submit our thoughts, our feelings to the authority of this word. And we trust in his unchanging promises because that's what our hope is built upon. That if we believe in Jesus Christ and we call upon his name, your sins are forgiven. You are adopted in the family of God. You are sealed for all of eternity and you will live with him forever. Isn't that good news? We're not to go through life going, I hope, maybe, I guess we'll find out. 100% assurance. Why? Not because you want it, but because God wants you to have it. He gives you a strong encouragement. He desires to all the more convincing give oath and promise so we would know the unchangeableness of his character. So as I, as I close, I just want to say one thing. <laughs> Always a pastor wants to say one last thing. Ends up being like five things. Uh, no, I think this is really just one last thing. We'll find out. Um, God has given his unchanging promises so we'd have unshakable faith, okay? That's what he wants us to see here. He gives us promises so we'll have assurance of salvation, so we'll persevere through difficulty. So when there's pain and there's hardship, we will rely more upon the promises than our own strength, our own fortitude, and upon the situation around us. He wants us to always come to his promises. So let me ask you, where are these promises found? This will be our short interaction time. Just where are they found? In the Bible. Holds it up. Good. I like that illustrated purpose, Robert. So let me just, let me just close with this. If you're going to have an unshakable faith in God's unchanging promises, we've got to be in the Word. We've got to be in the Word. So I just, I just want that. Just, just walk out with that. Am I in the Word? Am I growing in my assurance? And, and I, would, I would dare say, if you keep struggling with assurance... Wrestle with, are you in the word? And if you're in the word, are you actually believing the very word that God has given us? We're to be in the word. We're to be a people of the word. And we're to encourage one another in the word because what do we know about one another? Based upon Hebrews, we say sometimes we get lazy. We say sometimes we struggle. We say sometimes we don't actually do what it says and believe what it says. So what do we need at that moment? I need you coming alongside me. We need to come alongside one another to point one another back to the word. So let us be a people of, word, of the word that we'd have unshakable faith in the unchanging promises of God. Let me pray. Father,